the Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 13 with Pastor John King. Good morning, everybody. Boy, we got a message for you today from the Lord. I'll try not to get in the way. Ephesians 2, as we you recall from last week, we had to cut the message short. So we're going to start from Ephesians 2, verse 19, and we're going to go all the way to verse 13. Yeah, that's a chunk of information right there. Uh, but anyway, I hope, uh, I hope we can, um, you know, just hear from the Lord this morning. It's, it's always our goal when we open God's Word. Uh, I'm not going to be reading the entire passage up front, by the way. We'll take that in smaller chunks. But uh, just want to remind you from last week. You know, Paul was given the very unique privilege by God of revealing the mystery of how God formed the church out of two, the only two really, people groups in the world. We talk about different families, but we're talking about the families of humanity. And the Bible is very simple uh, we, we talk about all people, tribes, tongues, and nations, yes. But really, there's two families in, in, the, in God's design. That's the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Paul has the unique privilege of being able to reveal that mystery to us today. Uh, and that's going to be the focus on when we get to chapter 3 here this morning. But before he unfolds the purpose from last week, he, uh, he wanted to... Uh, um, Give us, explain a few things. And he wanted to make sure that, you know, we're humble before the Lord in explaining where we came from, knowing where we were. And he's speaking specifically to the Gentiles, but eventually to the Jews as well. And he's saying, uh, you Gentiles, uh, you are now, uh, you are once hopeless and without God. You remember that from last week. But he says, but now, in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been made near by the blood of Christ. So they were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. Not a good place to be. And that's where we are when we're apart from Christ. We're strangers to the covenant. We're like aliens to God because of the sin and the fall. This is true then, and as I just said, it's true now. It's the current state of all non-believers. But we do live in an age of grace. And, and Christ stands at the door of your heart. So if you don't know Jesus, and you're here this morning, you don't know, none of this registers with you, uh, you know that Jesus is standing at the door of your heart. He knocks. And all you have to do is open up to him, and he will come into your life and change you forever. Now, the new Christians of Paul's day, they would have recognized that they stood on the very edge of a new era after he revealed this mystery to them, especially uh, the Jews, the new Christian Jews, if you will, because it began this new administration of grace. We're going to talk about a dispensation today. That means administration, that's stewardship. It began with the apostolic age, which lasted from, like, from Jesus' death, AD 33, to about AD 100, and that at the same time, the foundation was laid for the church age, which we're presently in today. Uh, I think that uh, I wanted to make a kind of an important clarification, because if you're telling people about, you know, having once been far off from God, but needing to be brought near by the blood of Jesus, they could say, well, what about times before this mystery of the church was revealed? What about the times before Jesus came? And 
it's important that we understand that even though man, apart from God, okay, is indeed far off, he is still without excuse. Why? Two reasons if you're taking notes. One is general revelation of the divine creator. All that you see with your eyes through a microscope, through a telescope, that sun that's shining brightly out there, all of those things you see testify of God's greatness and goodness. But the second reason is because God has put his law, he's actually written his law on the hearts of men. In Romans 2.15 it says, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So, Again, prior to this dispensation of grace and all the wonderful work that the Lord has done, man is without excuse. And so those who reject Christ or reject the Bible uh, will have no leg to stand on during that time of judgment. But he said from last week, now you're united to God's people. You know, you, you were once far off, now you're united, united to God's people. Why? Because the religious barriers have been removed. The religious barriers between the Jews and Gentiles. And you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's that simple. The blood of Jesus who brings us. So with Christ's coming, the religious barriers between Jews and Gentiles were demolished. They were totally destroyed. Yet, even in our world today, we see people still building walls between people groups and races and religions and political you know, positions and such not. But with the fulfilling of the memorial law between, from Jesus, Jesus fulfilled the moral law. And because of that, Jews and Gentiles could be joined together by the completed work on the cross. This week, we're going to cover again, we're going we're to recognize the unique purpose of the church, but we're going to start with this fact that, you know what, now you're in the family and now you're part of the holy temple. You're part of the thing that God is building. And then we're going to see Paul unveils the mystery which we already know, but we're going to go over it again. And he's going to see how Paul communicates the unveiling of the mystery and the important contents that it has. And then we're going to see an amazing thing about the purpose of the mystery, something we don't generally think about. This ministry of grace and glory to God is the message to the world, but as we're going to see today, it's also to the message to the unseen realm, the angels in heaven. And we're going to see that. Again, I won't read our passage, but let's start, uh, let's, let's join together in, in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you once again that you have, by your grace, brought us together as a church family, as a local representation of your great body of believers throughout all the millions and billions of people on this planet. Lord, we know that maybe up to a third of the entire earth's population will gather today in your name and give glory to you. And I pray that that we would see the privilege that we have in joining together, not just as a local congregation, but all of those, Lord God. Thank you for the big picture that you give us through Scripture. Thank you that our vision and our sight is not just so narrow and undiscerning, Lord. You open our eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit within us and by your word. And so, Lord, may you do so now. May you do it once again. We pray this now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,
Amen. So finally, we see, you know, after all that Paul had said about being apart, far away from the Lord, we see here in verses 19 to 22, a beautiful picture of the church. This new nation, God's family, God's building. Let's read our passage. It says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Having said, you know, hey, you've been, you're so far apart, but you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, we need to remind ourselves of this. It's a, it's a fresh understanding, if you will. There, we are no longer strangers or foreigners as we once were prior to the Lord. We were strangers to God. We were strangers to his fellowship. We were strangers to his kingdom. But no more. Remember the word strangers is where we get the word, the Greek word is xenos, which is where we get the word xenophobia. An outsider, a person who does not belong. And that's where we were. Uh, he says foreigners, that's, that's that word uh, Peroikos, it means alien or exiled. And when you realize just you know, how far you were from God apart from his grace, it should give you great joy in your heart. A great appreciation, I should say, appreciation. He says, so you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. You're not only a new race of people, if you will, this third race of people, but we're also fellow citizens of a new nation. You know, we talk about nations and sovereignty of nations, and it's a big topic today. And it's been a topic all throughout man's history to be a part of a nation. But, you know, when we, when we come to Ephesians, again, it, it forces us to change our way of thinking, to think outside of the physical box of our own understanding. And think of the spiritual realm that God has placed you, even though you're here breathing. But we're with people. We're built together on this great foundation with the people, the saints before us, all the generations and all the centuries before us, and even now today, we're together as a new nation. And this will be fully realized and brought together in the great millennium. You see Jesus comes to earth and actually governs the earth from Jerusalem. And we play part. We're going to be working for the government by then. <laughs> so some people, that's a bad word, but it's going to be amazing. Because we're going to be working for Christ's government, okay? No longer strangers and aliens. Uh, one, one writer put it this way. It says, and this is something we need to remember when we gather together. Now, we have the privilege of both adoption and responsibility. Being in God's household means we share in the fellowship, the training, the discipleship, the interest, the care and concern, even protection and provision. We share in that. You know, I, I wish uh, 
Well, I don't need to tell you. I can't do it all by myself. I don't want to do it all by myself. And I see discipleship happening. I see people being cared for. And the reason is, is because you, you accept the responsibility of being a part of the local church. We also share in these responsibilities and duties, you know, serving in your local church or helping each other in practical ways. And we could make a long list of that, of what's happening, you know, just in the context of our own church. Romans 12, why do we do this? Well, Romans 12, 10 through 13, Paul wrote this. He says to us, he says, be kindly affectionate to one another. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. And if you want to know what it means to take responsibility as a local church, verse 11, he says, not lagging in diligence, Fervent in spirit, okay, you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit to like a person like me, serving the Lord, serving the Lord. And the result, verse 12, rejoicing in hope, but patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. How important is prayer? We, don't, we, we never do enough of it, and I'm not here to say how we fail when we never do enough. You know, people, people complain about the church always, you know, kind of beating on the sheep, if you will. But we never pray enough. And you guys know that. I know that. You know, the things that are, you can see, you know, we start stepping out a little bit in uh, maybe an outreach that not everybody agrees with, which we respect, okay? But you can see the enemy wants to get in there and cause division among us. We need to be praying. Even if you don't participate in tomorrow night's, um, you know, outreach. And again, your commitments, your your Conviction of the Lord, I totally get it, okay? But please pray for it. Please, please pray for it. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. And 13, distributing to the needs of the saints. And we live in a society that has plenty of social services and people receive care from the government because the government has taken over where the church dropped the ball in a sense but distributing to the needs of the saints and also notice given to hospitality. Willing to open up your home to have people over, you know, don't worry about the condition of your house. Be be hospitable. And so that's what it means. That's a little bit of what it means about the responsibilities and duties we have. And it should give us great comfort knowing that we stand, verse 20, on a very solid foundation. He says, having been built on the foundation of who? The apostles and the prophets. Now, most commentators believe that these prophets are the modern-day New Testament prophets, not necessarily the Old Testament prophets, because they didn't have a full understanding, as we're going to see, of what the church meant. That's why it was a mystery. So the, the, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Here's what one writer says, and I agree. When God built his church, Jesus was and is the very first stone laid. He's the author and captain of salvation, beginning and the end. Like a cornerstone of a building, he is the supportive stone. He holds up the rest of the stones, making them firm and true, building a firm and true foundation. 
He is also the directional stone, if you will, or the instructional stone. He lines up the building. He gives directions and instructions to all the other stones, his people, the church, and he does it through his holy word. A church without his support and direction will eventually collapse. And we see it. He alone must be preached, taught, and lived. Preached, taught, and lived. We, the church, are built upon the foundation laid by the testimonies of the apostles and prophets. We're reading one of those today in Paul's letter. They surrounded the Lord Jesus himself. Okay, all the apostles had a personal connection with Jesus. Uh, and their record and testimony of the word of God itself is the foundation upon which the whole church is to be laid. And that's why we're so adamant and determined to continue to be a church that teaches from the foundation God's word. That's, why we, that's, that's what we're all about. And I don't care, you know, we know what society's doing, we know what the progressive church is doing. But we're not going to do that here. Verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together. Now here's where we start to come in. You have the foundation laid, but you have the whole building being fitted together. The church is a growing organism, if you will. Now again, you're thinking spiritually. You've got to think spiritually. He's using physical metaphors, but think about it in a spiritual sense. In whom you are also, now again, really directly to us, you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You were once separated as an outsider. You were once far away from God. And now being filled, you're like a stone that's filled with the Holy Spirit, being placed among other stones so that the Holy Spirit can gather among us and God's presence can be among us. That's a powerful thing. That's a powerful thing. Because we build the wall of God's new temple, if you will. We know that in the latter days, and in the new millennial reign, the temple will be rebuilt. But, meantime, we are the temple, the church. This is the community being constructed into the living, holy temple of God the Spirit. Challenge your mind to think on those things. It's a great, perfect, awesome replacement for the things that come into our minds that we allow in. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. You and I, coming to him as to a living stone, this is Jesus now, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious. Now you also, verse 5, as living stones are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up what spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Your service, your participation, your offering of praise and worship, bringing your tithes and offerings, all the things that you do are spiritual sacrifices which God sees as acceptable to God. Why? Because you're, you're washed in Jesus' blood. You've been brought near by Jesus Christ's blood. And so now, as a sacrifice, you're acceptable. Apart from God, you can do all the good works you want. You can do all the wonderful things, even give your life for another, but apart from God, you're not an acceptable sacrifice. 
Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Hughes writes this. He says, just as God first took up residence in the wilderness tabernacle, and if you're here on Wednesday nights, you see that in our midweek study, filling it with such glory that Moses could not enter it at one point, and later filling the Jerusalem temple in the same way with Solomon when he prayed, when they dedicated the temple. But so now, by his spirit, the third race is his chosen dwelling place. See, we're, we're, we're captivated by all we can see. We're, we're captivated by the physical. We live in a world that only says things have to be proven by science, a natural and God challenges you and I to renew our minds. Now we come to chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We're going to see that the mystery is now revealed. And we're going to see how Paul communicates it and what it contains, this great mystery. Look at look with me, read with me if you will. He says, for this reason I, Paul. Now again, for this reason, all the things he just explained... For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, verse 2, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. How that, by the revelation he had made known to me, the mystery, as I have briefly written already, Verse 4, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. You know, when you read Paul's letters, you'll notice he does not want the church that he writes to to be ignorant about things. He doesn't want you to be ignorant about the rapture. He doesn't want you to be ignorant, or ignorant about spiritual gifts. And he doesn't want us to be ignorant of this mystery of the church. Verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. Okay, this is new information that Paul is revealing. As it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Verse 6, why that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body. This is the mystery. This is what he's saying. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That's the mystery that he's revealing to this early church. And you might say, well, I already knew that, Pastor John. Of course, you've been living under God's grace. You've understood that it's all-inclusive, okay? You understand that the Bible and that the, the, the gospel is for all people, tongues, tribes, and nations. They didn't understand that then. You see how thankful we are. Because they were living in, in, in ignorance until Paul had come. But we're going to see something Kind of amazing, I feel anyway. I, I, do, I get excited. I want to skip all the way to the end, but I can't. I'm not going to anyway. The ministry was given to Paul. Now he starts out. He, he's going he's gonna to say, and, and, and whenever the Lord gives you and I a ministry, we need to give credit to God, realizing where it came from. Whether you pastor, whether you teach the Bible, whether you teach Sunday school, however you serve the Lord, as a priest of your home, whatever you're doing, okay, at family altar time, God has given that ministry to you. And he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. Not only did Paul have an amazing testimony, which we've heard many times on the road to Damascus, you know, how he was blinded and thrown off his horse and couldn't see for three days. 
But he also saw his purpose and got Christ's plan for redemption. And that's where it gets fuzzy for a lot of believers, doesn't it? You know you're saved, you know you're a Christian, but you don't understand your purpose in the body of Christ. And that's one thing I hope that we can continue to communicate for young kids, kids growing up to be teenagers and adults, and for all of us. We do have a purpose in the body of Christ. And we need to learn how to hear from God and understand what it is. And we need to encourage one another in their giftings, in their talents, and the things that they do for the Lord. Now he says, I was a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. Right off the bat, he's telling them, the reason I'm in jail is because of you. I'm in prison here in Rome because of you Gentiles. Paul was in Rome being held under house arrest, quote, because apparently he had a lot of freedom. But every night he was granted, or he was, he was chained under protective custody to a Roman centurion. The reason he was in Rome under house arrest was he was awaiting his trial before Caesar at this time. And he was granted a trial because of his Roman citizenship. We talk about citizenship. You know, he pulled out the citizenship card when it was necessary for the furtherance of the gospel. And for two years prior, he was in Caesarea, as they kind of passed him along between the leaders of the day. And he finally ended up in Rome. And this was the first time he was imprisoned in Rome. He will be imprisoned for a second and last time at the end of his ministry before he was executed by Nero. But he was in custody because he had been rescued through a long series of events in the, chapter, in the book of Acts from a Jewish mob in Jerusalem. But during Paul's first imprisonment, you guys may know this, he wrote four letters. He wrote Ephesians. He wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He wrote all those letters while he was being held captive, while he was awaiting trial. He was in jail because of the Gentiles. So he made good use of his time. But why was Paul being held as a prisoner, you might ask? And uh, if you will, turn with me over to Acts 21. We don't have a slide, I don't believe, or do we? Maybe we do. Yeah, we do. But we're going to be in Acts 21 for just a little while. We're going to take a little, keep your finger on Ephesians 3 and go back a few chapters to Acts 21, if you would. Acts 21, we're going to start, we're, we're, our text, that we're, I'm not going to read it all, but its text it starts in verse 10, but at the end of his third missionary journey, which is approximately A.D. 53 to 57, Paul went to Jerusalem. And it was, it was considered for Paul to be a very dangerous trip to Jerusalem. Many people tried to talk him out of it. Uh, even Luke and the other companions who were with him tried to say, you don't need to be going to Jerusalem, Paul. Because you know, remember, why, why would he have problems in Jerusalem? Well, in the eyes of the, the Jews, he was a turncoat. You know, he, was, he was on the, the side of those who were putting the church to death and throwing him into jail. And now he's all of a sudden born again. Think about that when you became a Christian. And some of your relatives said, wait a minute, I know you. I know how you were. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. And they were going to watch over a period of time to see if you truly were saved. Because they knew who you were before you came to Christ. 
And some of your relatives maybe don't talk to you to this very day, unfortunately. So Paul was going into the mouth of the lion's den. But in Acts 21, verses 10 through 14, it says they were staying uh, many days. A certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judah. This is there on their outskirts. They haven't come into Jerusalem yet. In verse 11, and this prophet came, uh, and he came to us, and he took Paul's belt, okay? And then he tied himself up as he was prophesying what was going to happen to Paul. And it says... He took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and he says, thus says the Holy Spirit. Now, he was a true prophet, but sometimes we've got to watch out what people say today when they call themselves a prophet. He was a true prophet. He says, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So that was a true prophecy because we know he's, where is he right now? He's in the hands of the Gentiles. Of course, Paul couldn't be talking out of it. Verse 14, when we had done not, or excuse me, when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, oh, well, the will of the Lord be done. Again, the reason for the danger was that many of the Christian Jews now who had been saved were still holding on to their legalistic ways. And they didn't like the idea that Paul was teaching the Gentiles, for one, those filthy Dog, Gentiles, is how they would consider them. And they'd be, the Lord was sanctifying them, okay? He, even though they were Christians, a lot of these Jews, they still had a lot of cleaning up to do. <laughs> you know, the Lord, not only does he capture us as fish, but he sometimes he has to gut us and clean us and change everything about us from the inside out. And so they were leery of Paul's teachings to the Gentiles about this Jewish purification ceremony, such as Nazarite vows and circumcision. So while he's there, the church leaders, you know, they know that there's a problem, okay? Again, this is a long story, but it leads up to why Paul's in jail. He agreed with the church elders, with James and others, that he would sponsor four young men who were about to finish their Nazarite vow. You remember the Nazarite vow where you cut your hair off, you, uh, you abstain from alcohol, and you dedicate a period of time, a season of your life to the Lord. And so at the end of that, they would have this great sort of uh, celebration ceremony at the temple. And so he was going to sponsor these four young Christian Jews. He would participate, get his head, you know, he had, he had, Paul himself had even gone through this ritual earlier, you know. And again, we talk about, well, you're not bound to rituals anymore. Paul would do what he needed to do to communicate the gospel. He knows it doesn't give you salvation. But again, there were thousands of newly converted, formerly Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And as as I said, they were still very zealous for the law, for the Mosaic ceremonial law, the ceremonial law. So this closing ceremony would be held at the temple. They'd be offering sacrifices and prayers, and they'd fasted for seven days to close this ceremony out. But the problem came when Paul was recognized. And you look in Acts 21, verse 27. It says, the Jews from Asia recognized Paul. You see, here he was. He was now on fire. He was an apostle for Jesus. But remember, his transformation, his his change was so radical 
that he was making a name for himself all over the place, and it wasn't always a good name. I mean, they, you know, look at the history. The guy was beaten so many times. He was whipped. He was stoned. I mean, a lot of things happened to him. He took a lot of physical abuse. And it says these Jews from Asia stirred up a crowd at the temple. Here he was, you know, participating in this ceremony, trying to make it, you know, trying to get along. And they saw him and they're like, wait a minute, that's the guy that's been preaching up in Greece, you know. And they mobbed him. And they beat him up. And while he was being beaten, a Roman garrison came and rescued him. He was falsely charged by them. In verse 28, crying out, these, these Jews, from they were crying out, Men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, now pay attention, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Remember we said he had taken down the wall of separation by the blood of Christ? And we referenced that wall of separation between the court of the Gentiles and the rest of the temple complex. Paul was falsely accused of breaking the law. This is a death sentence, okay, of bringing these Greeks, these Gentiles, into a place in the temple that they didn't belong. But he declared last week that that's all gone. But to top it off, he didn't actually do that. This was a false accusation. And that's how things happen in the world. False accusations, people in, in a lot of trouble. So following our story, it continues on through Acts chapter 22 and 23. Paul would testify publicly of the, his conversion to Christianity. He would go before the Sanhedrin and he would take their abuse once again. They slapped him around. That would cause a division between the Sanhedrin, between these religious leaders. And that resulted in a plot to murder him. You see, Paul, you know, he was really going, I mean, think about it. His own people, they wanted to kill him now. He'd stirred them up so bad. And that's what the gospel does. In many places, it stirs up the world so much that it can cost you your life. We were praying this morning about those who don't have the freedom to talk about Jesus. Don't have the freedom to do the things we get to do. So Paul, long story short, Paul was a prisoner because he stood up for his ministry to the Gentiles. He wouldn't back down for the calling God had given him. And we see that this was all part of God's plan. Back to our text, Ephesians 3, verse 2. He says, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of grace, of the grace of God. Now, in a very conversation like manner, Paul is going to draw interest to the subject at hand. If you had a New Living Translation, that passage would read, Assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you, Gentiles. I've been put in jail for you, but you know that by God's administration and God's timing, I was given a special responsibility to speak to you. The word dispensation, oikonomia, it's a word for stewardship, administration, and management. That's what it means in the basic Greek. And he says, by the grace of God. Again, undeserved favor. 
which was given to me for you. Paul recognized that he had a privilege to declare this great message. So whenever you're declaring the gospel message, however you're doing it, however you're communicating the true gospel message, consider it to be a privilege. Consider it to be a privilege. Romans 15, 15 through 16. His calling. He says, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might minister or be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. It was Paul's privilege. It was his duty to oversee and administer the grace of God to the churches and to the world at large. You see now why Paul was given the humble responsibility of writing three quarters of the New Testament. And this is how he received it from the Lord. This great apostle, verse 3, he says, how that by revelation he, Jesus, made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already. By revelation, apocalypsis, that means to lay bare. That means, in this case, it's a disclosure of truth concerning things before that were unknown. And he made known to me the mystery, mysterion, the mystery. When you look at this word mystery or mysterion, it's not mysterious, as the vines would say, not the mysterious use of the word mystery, something mysterious, like, that's mysterious, that's a mystery, as we would say it in the English word. But it refers to which being outside the range of unassisted natural natural apprehension can be made known only by divine revelation and is made known in a manner and at a time appointed by God. You know, we talk about God's timing. And Paul is testifying of God's timing. And how he received it, you couldn't receive it anywhere, any way else. Because God withheld the knowledge of the church, by and large, not entirely, from the Old Testament writers. Verse 4, By which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. When you read what I'm writing, this letter to you, it's there so that you can understand. We should come to the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit and ask Him for divine understanding when we read His Word. And so He says, you you can understand my knowledge. In other words, to perceive, to connect the dots, if you will. But before He reveals in chapter 6, or excuse me, verse 6, the mystery, which we already know, he wants to talk about the timing. Look at verse 5. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of man. In previous generation, this whole concept of the church was not made known. Yes, we knew the Messiah would come. Yes, we knew the Messiah would give his life, that he would be a suffering servant. Yes, we knew a lot of things about Jesus. The whole entire Old Testament points to Jesus, but it doesn't talk very much very clearly until this point about the church. And he says that it has now been revealed 
By what? The Spirit of God and His holy apostles and prophets. That's why the foundation is mainly, at least in the New Testament, built upon the prophets and the apostles in the New Testament. Their, their testimony. All right, summing this up. All this simply means is that the mystery of Christ was three things. The mystery of Christ was three things. First of all, it was a truth that could not be known before the apostles and prophets. Second, it was a truth that could not be discovered by human reasoning. And third, it was a truth that had to be revealed by God if it was ever going to be known. And so now you understand when he says you were once far off, <laughs> you were once far off. You were so far away, you had no expectation of this mystery of the gospel of the church and the purpose that Jesus Christ came. One writer put it this way, the mystery of Christ was not a creation of man's mind. You see, we think we're super smart. I mean, there's so much stuff written out there. You, 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 I mean, it's crazy, right? You've got all kinds of things written out there by man and his mind. It's not a creation of man's mind, of his rationalizations, his concepts, his thoughts and ideas, of which we were raised under and often, you know, apart from the church in society, Man could have never figured out the mystery. No man in this physical world could ever penetrate the spiritual world and discover the truth, no matter what some have claimed. You look at the world's, you know, all the different religions in the world and all the different belief systems, and you read them and you realize that that is nowhere near what the real God is all about. And because it was a mystery. John 3.13 says, No one has ascended to heaven but he, Jesus, who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. You couldn't have made a special trip to heaven to get this information. It had to come from heaven to us through Christ. Verse 6. Now we're going to see the content of the mystery that you guys already know about, right? You know about the church because you are the church. So we're just going to review. Verse 6, threefold revelation here. That the Gentiles, first of all, here's, here's the mystery simplified. First off, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of God's promises. Originally, it was, it was given to God's chosen people, the Jews. They were heirs of the blessings that were promised to Abraham. But through Christ, now... Non-Jews also become heirs of God's promise. So that's the first. Your fellow heirs of the promise that God originally gave to Abraham. The next thing you need to understand is that not all Jews are heirs to the promise. Not all Jews, just because they're Jewish, have received Christ. Only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. It requires faith. This mystery, which is now revealed in Christ, requires faith. We learned last week, before Jesus Christ came, if a person wanted to know God, he had to approach him somehow, some way, through the Jewish faith. But given the failure of Israel to uphold God's desire, God made a way for anyone to approach God 
but not just any old way. It had to be through the blood of Jesus Christ. As we said earlier, there were no more religious barriers. Access to a promise that God himself, he actually swore an oath to this. God himself swore an oath to this promise. Hebrews 6.17 says, Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what he has promised, he confirmed it with an oath. So, first of all, Gentiles would be fellow heirs with true believers, true believing Jews. Second, we're the same body. We're talking about the church now. We're all part of the same body. All the racial discrimination, all the things that can happen among humans in Christ has been laid flat. And then finally, the third thing is we are partakers of his promise. He didn't just save us for the sake of, you know, using us as a trophy, if you will, but we partake of the promise. We receive the same promises that God promised Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would inherit the promised land and have a great nation, one writer puts it, born of his loins. The great nation was the Jewish nation. And this is the reason the Jews even today consider Palestine to be their land. However, there was a spiritual meaning to God's promise. Canaan is a type of heaven. The promised land is a type of heaven. And the new heavens and the new earth, God is going to recreate. So we have a promise. Therefore, the primary purpose in Christ has to do with the glorious privilege of being saved and living with God and Christ for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, if none of this is true, and, and it was all a big hocus pocus, why would we bother? I say it many times. Why would we bother to come? Well, because you know in your heart that you believe in Jesus Christ and you respect his word. And you want to know more from his word, despite what people may see. You want to live out your faith. In verse 1, Paul refers to being a prisoner for Christ, meaning that he actually existed to serve the Lord. And that's our calling as well. We exist to what? To get up every morning and go to work? To go buy groceries? Cook a meal? Pay our mortgage? Continue to do that until we get too sick? And we end up in a hospital bed? And then we die? Is that why we exist? No. No. We exist to serve the Lord. And that was Paul's calling. And he's administering the grace of God to those around him. And so we exist to administer the grace of God to, around, to the people around us. How do you do that? You make yourself available to them. You just make yourself available. You say, Lord, what would you have me to do? You want to be available and you want to be agreeable to the things that he says in his word. And be obedient to them. In our last section, we're going to see the purpose of the mystery, this ministry of grace to the glory of God. It always comes back to the glory of God. His grace was given 
that his glory would shine bright. The grace of God was given to Paul despite the shortcomings. God chose him to reveal the mystery just as he chooses you to reveal the mystery to those in this world that haven't heard the gospel message. Or maybe they haven't received the grace of God from those who they associate the church with. Verses 7 through 13, he says, Of which I became a minister according to the gift and of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. You see, you don't think about that, do you? You don't think about the fact that you're actually witnessing to the angels in heaven by your life in Christ. According to the eternal purpose, verse 11, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you, do not lose heart at my tribulations for you. Don't lose heart to the fact that I'm in jail because of you. Because it's your glory. It's for your good. Verse 7, he says, when I became a minister... um, a servant of the king, this is the English word deacon, diakonos. According to the gift, notice he stresses the fact that it is a gift from God anytime he gets to minister on God's behalf. And this gift of the grace of God in the New Testament is always referred to as a supernatural gift. It's a supernatural gift. And it's given to me by the effective working, this energia, the effective working of his power. Only used, this word is only used of superhuman power. And he says in verse 8, I have a gift, the gift is to the uh, Gentile. He's been given the gift of a Gentile ministry. He says, look, I'm the least of all the saints. And I get to do this? I don't know what your past is, but I can, say, I can say similar things, okay? When I realize what my past entailed, and I get to do this, I get to serve the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. Now, why would Paul be so hard on himself? Well, you know, he always recognized why at one point in his life, he was truly far away from God, even though he was steeped in the religion of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse uh, 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, this is a faithful saying. When he writes to this young pastor, he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Okay? I am chief of sinners. However, for this reason I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. As wicked as he was, as fallen as he was, where no matter where a person comes from, when he lifts you out of that, when he brings you to Christ, you are there to be a pattern for those who will believe. 
Verse 9, the gift of a revelatory ministry. He's revealing the administration and the mystery to the world. We said that earlier. He says, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. What is the fellowship of the mystery? Fellowship is koinonia. That's, that's when we share food and fellowship. It's when we share together. And we share the dignity and the blessings of our Lord. And good food as well, sometimes. And he says, I want to make all people see. Now this is the thing. When you, when you think about your church and, and your participation in church, one of the things that should motivate you is you want people to see that, you know what, we're not a bunch of hypocrites. We're a bunch of sinners, yes. But we're not a bunch of hypocrites. We do really genuinely care for one another. There is a place of community in a world that's just bitten with strife, a world that's covered with backbiting and everything else. But we really want to make the world see the dignity and the blessings of Christ has been put upon us as we live it out. So he says, I want to make all see. In other words, I want to inform the world about the church. This is Paul's calling. I want to make it plain to everyone. He says, what is the fellowship of the mystery? This is the fullness of God's plan. This is what's revealed to us now in the New Testament. It unfolds all your salvation, all the future prophecies. The fullness of God's plan and how it will all come together. But he says, from the beginning of ages, it has previously been hidden by God. It was hidden in him from the beginning of the world. New revelation. And he says, he created all things through Christ Jesus. John 1.3, all things were made through him, Jesus, and without him, nothing was made that was made. The preeminence of Christ. So how do we, you and I, as a local church, how do we inform the world about God? By living out the words and promises of Jesus. That's how we do it. John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, if, if, we're, if we're marked by division and strife and arguing and fighting amongst each other, the world will not recognize us as legitimate Revealing the wisdom of God in the heavenly realm. This is the final uh, portion of today's message. He says in verse 10, To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the church. The church now needed to know, or excuse me, the manifold wisdom of God. He's referring to, you know, we talk about not putting God in a box, Okay. Everything about God that you can see, and we can talk about creation, we can talk about future plans and prophecies, all the things that we can see about God, it, it, it amounts to a multifaceted wisdom. It's all there for us. We're just kind of you know, numb to it sometimes. And he says, uh, it needs to be made known by the church. In other words, through the church. Again, our calling is to declare Jesus and him crucified and the word of God and the church through his word to the world. But also notice this, that the church would also to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Now this, this will get your attention if you hadn't recognized it. He's, he's talking about principalities and powers in the, in the heavenly uh, 
places. We're going to talk more about that in chapter 6. But he's talking about the place where angels and demons hold rule or have dominion over things. The unseen realm that we don't see, but it's all around us. Think about this for a moment. We're often rightfully reminded of our sacred duty to live holy lives, okay? Our duty to love one another, and in doing so, to inform the world around us of Christ. We've said that several times. But here we have another purpose. Another purpose. You know, this manifold wisdom of God really extends out. God has chosen the church to do what? To inform the angels about redemption in Christ. We live, and we indeed do right now, capture the attention of a multitude of heavenly hosts right now, watching us singing and praying. And, you know, one of the living stones, the blockhead pastor up here, preaching the word of God. They see that, and they're amazed. You say, well, wait a minute. The angels have seen everything, right? I mean, they were present when the third of the heavens fell. They were present when God spoke the universe into existence. They were present when Jesus was crucified and when he was raised again and when he was ascended to the Father. They were present for all of that. But God didn't even reveal the mystery that he withheld from the church and from the Old Testament saints, he didn't even reveal it to the angels in heaven until the time we live in right now. What the heavenly realm, what the angels needed to learn was that Jesus' death and resurrection would be, as one writer put it, the catalyst for redeeming the Gentile people groups, all of the tribes of the earth, that he would bring them together, Jews and Gentiles, under the church. Finally, looking at verses 11 and 12, realizing this eternal purpose, as we study God's word, and as the angels study the church, we see that the work of reconciliation by Jesus, as one writer put it, was the model for the reconciliation of the universe. Remember, we started this talking about how we have a seat above all created things and that one time Jesus will be indeed over all things. Reconciling of the universe when everything in heaven and earth will be brought together in him. Where does that put us? After you read all of that, hopefully, if you've fallen asleep, taken a nap real quick, come back to life, whatever. After all that, where does that put us? Verse 12, confident access to the heavenly realm in Christ. We have confident access. It says, in whom we have boldness, cheerful courage with no doubts. We have access. We, can, we have confidence. We have access to the throne of grace. Because we're in Christ and we have confidence, we have trust that we can come before the Lord when we go in prayer, when we get before him. 
through faith in him. And so Paul concludes, he says, uh, verse 13, he says, So therefore, considering all that, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is to your glory. And I may be in prison. Uh, my freedom's been restricted. I'm chained to a Roman guard every night, awaiting for whatever's going to happen to me. He says, but don't lose heart. Don't feel sorrow. Don't feel sadness because of my tribulations for you. Don't lose courage. Don't be faint and weary in doing good. That's the same message to us. Crazy season of elections that are all around us. The, the economy, right? The war in Ukraine. The, you know, the, the food shortage, global food shortage, which is happening all around the world now. It says, don't lose courage. Don't be faint. So finally, let me leave you with this. This is from John Stott in 1982. John Stott was a British theologian, and he, he suggested three facts about the church. When you talk about, you know, this is all, all about the mystery of the church. Three facts, real quickly. First of all, the church is central to history. Everything is going to come and go, okay? All the political movements, all the wars, all the nations which rise and fall. The church is central to history, and only the church will survive history. Only. Also, the church is central to the gospel. We learn that the gospel involves both pre the preaching of Christ and the mystery of the church. Finally, the church is central to Christian living. Attending and supporting a local church really is not optional. It's not optional. I'm preaching to the choir. Hughes wrote this. He says, I am not saying you have to go to church to be a Christian. But you also do not have to go home to be married. <laughs> and if you do not frequent your home, your relationship will be in jeopardy. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, we're not going to have a closing song, but we have a closing verse to read together. So let's kind of stand and kind of shake it out a little bit. I realize this was a long message. Let's, let's read this out loud and kind of reinforce the preeminence of Christ. Let's put him first in all things. Here's in Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Thank you, guys. Go and grow, as it's been said. Go and grow in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.